I wonder um, how many of you have heard this story that was developing earlier on this month about this, this couple from Brampton. Have, have you heard this story? Who, uh, who won the lottery back in, in January? Um, if you haven't heard about it, it's this, it's this amazing story. I, I, it's the kind of thing you, you can't even believe that, that it actually happens. Um, so this couple, back in January, they buy this lottery ticket uh, for this lottery. I don't know which one they played, but, but the lottery hits this jackpot of $50 million, right? This couple goes and they buy this ticket. Now, before I go on with the story, I, I, it suddenly occurs to me, it came to my attention this week that I've used this, I've used a lot of lottery analogies in the last little while. I've talked about how prayer is like, you can't ask God to let you win the lottery and then not buy a ticket. And now I'm telling this lottery story. I don't endorse the buying of lottery tickets. Like I'm not, uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's for you to work out with God. But if at the end of the day, somebody asks you, why are you buying a lottery ticket? And the answer is money. You've got some kingdom value stuff to sort out in your life. But anyway, this couple, so this is just a, this isn't an endorsement. It's just this couple bought this lottery ticket for this $50 million jackpot. And when you know, they're watching the broadcast and their numbers hit and they know it. They're listening to the broadcaster rhyme off the numbers and they're thinking, those are our numbers. My goodness, we've just won $50 million. And, and they jump out of their chairs and grab the wife's purse in order to retrieve the ticket, which is duct taped to the inside of the purse. And they rip open the purse and there it is, gone, like gonzo gone. $50 million winning lottery ticket, gone. And they're like, they dump out the purse and it's not in there and they empty the recycling and they empty all the trashes and it is not there. And they toss their house and they toss their car and they toss, you know, Buddy's office. Like they are, they're just everywhere. They are frantic looking for this ticket and they look for days. And days turn to weeks and they're not sleeping, and they're miserable, and, and weeks turn to months, literally. Until on April 1st, somebody hands them an envelope that says, April Fools, and inside is their lottery ticket with the duct tape still attached. Like if somebody had found it at church. Whatever had happened, it ended up outside of her purse and somebody ended up finding it in a stack of papers at church and because they signed it and wrote their address on it, they knew, I mean, I'm assuming in the church they all knew what was going on, but they gave the lottery ticket back. You find, rummaging through some garbage, a $50 million lottery ticket. And here's the thing, I mean, here's the question, right? What do you do with it? If that had been you, if you had been rummaging through the papers and you had found what you knew was a winning $50 million lottery ticket, what would you have done? I, everybody says, I know what I should do, I think. At least a lot of people, I think, would say, I know I should probably give it back. Would you? If you were the kind of person who'd be inclined to say, I should probably give it back, would, would you? And if, if you're the kind of person who would thinks, I should probably give it back, and you would actually be inclined to give it back, how would you have felt <laughs> about the whole endeavor of handing over a winning $50 million lottery ticket back to its original owner? 
in that moment, what would you have wanted to do? We're into these last verses, the last three weeks, this last words series are the last three weeks of our community studying Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. We've been into this on and off for like 14 months now, studying uh, this one sermon that Jesus, we've spent 14 months unpacking one sermon that Jesus preached. So we, we've probably preached for 15 or 17 hours on this thing. Um, it takes 12 minutes to read. So I, I would say we've been in depth. Our life group, some of them debrief the sermons week after. I can't imagine taking 14 months to talk about, you know, the sermon I'm going to preach this morning. But we've done that. We've taken 14 months and we've unpacked it all. And I think um, have maybe at times lost sight of the fact that this is actually just a single talk that Jesus gave. Um, 14 months ago, last May, we looked at the introduction at what we call the Beatitudes, which simply describe the heart attitudes of people who live to follow Jesus Christ. They know that they have a desperate need for God. They are broken over the brokenness in their own life and the brokenness they see all around them. They are submissive to God. They're hungry to live rightly with God and rightly with themselves and rightly with others and rightly with the world and they're merciful and they're pure and they are peacemakers. They bring love and joy and peace in, into people's lives and they're not afraid to suffer for the sake of the good news about Jesus Christ. And then back in the fall, we, looked at the, the, we began to look at the main part of the Sermon on the Mount, which has really two major points to it. Jesus' first point was that if you want to be a follower of his, that's not about religious rule keeping or religious performance. It's about a kind of devotion to God and others that emerges from a heart that is filled with love. We talked about that in our heart condition series and in our God likes this series. And then the second point in Jesus' sermon was that if you want to live a life of following Jesus, that life is really rooted in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in both praying for and then living out the values and the priorities of the Lord's prayer. That's the sermon. And then last Sunday, Carrie walked us into the beginning of Jesus' conclusion to the sermon, the last part of the sermon. And she talked us through Jesus' concluding words to that were intended to summarize every part of the sermon that starts with the Lord's prayer and to just say, listen, if you want to be this kind of person that God's inviting you to be, you are going to experience that in as much as you live in prayerful reliance on the lavish overflow of the love of an infinitely good, infinitely loving divine parent who wants to make you into the person he created you to be. It is about prayerful reliance. It is the person who keeps on asking and keeps on seeking and keeps on knocking on God's door that becomes the person that God has created us to be. And then this week, we're gonna look at Jesus' summary statements about the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, and then next week, Jeff is gonna bring the whole thing to, the con to a conclusion with the words, now what? So the, Jesus' second word of conclusion to wrap up this whole sermon that we've been studying for the last 14 months goes like this. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, it says, so, you know, therefore, 
in summation, in conclusion. This is Jesus bringing everything to a close and saying, okay, in light of everything that we've talked about, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So, Jesus says, in summation, do this thing. This is Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets, of all the Old Testament teaching of what it looks like to live rightly in relationship with God and rightly in relationship with yourself and rightly in relationship with other people and rightly in relationship with the world. All of what Jesus says, all of what you've ever been taught from the scriptures is summarized in this. Actually, in the Greek, in English, it says this sums up the law and the prophets. In Greek, it just says this is the law and the prophets. This is it. This is all. This is what there is. It's Jesus' way of summarizing his whole sermon. Saying, listen, everything we've been talking about, everything that I've been going on about since back in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, this is what it says. It says, this is the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, right? There's that language again. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, look, everything I'm about to tell you is not about something new. I'm not teaching you something new. What I'm doing is I'm bringing all of the teaching you've ever received from the scriptures, I'm bringing it to fulfillment. I'm bringing it to its logical conclusion. I'm I'm bringing it to its intended purpose for you. And now at the back end of the sermon, Jesus says, so everything that we've talked about is summarized in this. But he's doing more than just summarizing the law and the prophets, and more than just summarizing the sermon, Jesus is summarizing all of life. The, the words in Greek, the first words of the verse are, therefore, in all of everything, as far as you're concerned, you're to do this. It, the way the Greek is set up, it's hard to explain, but the word all is intended to be emphatic, like all, like I mean all. When I say all, you know what I mean? All, in all. And then what Jesus does is he adds the word everything, in all of everything. It's like, you know when I said all? It's actually more than that. It's all as much as it includes everything, right? It's a double emphasis. It's like Jesus' way of saying, listen, (laughs) I can't underestimate how important this is. I can't overstress how much I mean that this applies to all of everything, okay? This is all of everything. And then the word you is emphatic. It's like, as it pertains to you, you among all people, you in distinction from everybody else, as far as it is, as it has to do with you who want to follow me, this is how it goes, In all of everything, what I want you to do is only ever, always do this one thing. Do to others what you would have them do to you. In all of everything, only ever, always do this one thing. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus says, as you As you look at your life, I want you to see 
the world through other people's eyes. As you walk through the world, I want you to walk through the world wearing other people's shoes. In every circumstance, no matter where you are, no matter what's happening, no matter who's around you, I want you to be present to the realities and the circumstances of the people that are around you all the time. And I want you to be continually asking this one question. If I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that grocery clerk, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that mom who's struggling with the kid in the mall, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that homeless person, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that underprivileged kid, what would I, would want, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that person struggling with that wheelchair, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was that person standing all alone by themselves in the lobby, what would I want someone to do for me? If I was somebody who was just so far from God and had no idea about the good news about Jesus Christ, what would I want someone to do for me? If I were them, Jesus says, this is it. This is all of life. In all of everything, only ever, always do this one thing. Ask yourself the question, if I was them, what would I want someone to do to me? And then do it. That, according to Jesus, is what it means to love somebody. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is approached by a Pharisee or a teacher of the law who says to him, listen, you know, this whole law and the prophets, that language emerges there again, all the law and the prophets, all this teaching, all these commandments, whatever, boil it down for me. What's the most important thing? And Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus says the first thing, love God with a full heart. Love God with all that you have. Love God with all that you are. Just give your whole life over to loving God. Be passionately in love with God. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There's that language again. All the law and the prophets boil down to love. So when Jesus says that the law and the prophets are due to others, what you would have someone do to you, that's love. That's what love looks like. And that, Jesus says, that's it. That's in all of everything, only ever always do that one thing, love people, by asking, if I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? That's it. The New Testament, Paul writes, he says, this is the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters. In all of life, in all of religion, in all of your following Jesus, there's only one thing you have to keep track of. He says that your faith in God would express itself in love. That's it. That's the only thing God cares about, that your faith expresses itself in love. Jesus' brother James says in James 2 verse 8 that if you're obeying the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing the right thing. That's it. That's the only way to measure whether or not you're doing the right thing. Loving your neighbor as yourself. That's all. This is the whole thing. Everything that Jesus has been teaching about what it looks like to follow him boils down to this. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. If I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? Um, you know, we talk or people have talked before, you'll see people wearing bracelets or whatever, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus would say, it's the wrong question. I mean, it's the right question, do what I would do. But Jesus said, that's not the most helpful question. If, if Jesus were to get a bracelet, it wouldn't say WWJD. His bracelet would say WWIW. What would I want 
In that situation, if I were them, what would I want? Go and do that. Jesus says that, that is the whole thing. And a life lived by that rule is a million miles away from a life of religion. Million miles away. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been contrasting his way of life with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who live life for religious rule keeping and religious performance, to put on a religious show. That's what they live for. And, and they were experts at rules, right? God gives the 10 commandments. They search the law and find 603 more. And then write 800 pages of commentary on the 613 commands, and then over time accumulate 72 volumes, 6,200 pages of commentary on the 800 pages on the 613 rules that are meant to elucidate the 10 commandments, right? They're masters of generating rules, a rule for every situation, so that in every situation you always know exactly what the right thing to do is. Jesus says, that's not what this is about. Don't get all religious with this because you can play funny games with the golden rule if you start to treat it like a religious rule, right? There, there are people who would say, well, they kind of read the golden rule as though what it really means is do unto others so that they do to you. And the whole point is you be nice to other people and they'll be nice to you. And then folks like that get all angry and disillusioned with God when they extend themselves in love to somebody else and get nothing back for it as though they've been offended somehow. Jesus says, what's to be offended at? That's the whole point is what you're giving, not what you're getting. It's, this isn't like honesty pays. Who cares if it pays? Love people, Jesus says, that's all. What would I want someone to do for me if I were them? Or you turn it into a religious rule and now you expect something back. Or you use it as an opportunity actually to justify your sin. Well, you know, I would enjoy being flattered by people. I enjoy it when people say nice things about me rather than um, harsh and critical things. And so I will flatter everybody else and I will say nice things about everybody else. And then in return, they will say nice things about me. And then I will have gotten what I wanted because what I wanted was not the truth spoken in love so that I could be challenged to grow. I don't want that. What I want is flattery and to feel good about myself. And so I, I behaved in a way towards others that cued them as to this is what I want back and everybody got what they wanted. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Somebody once asked me, they said, listen, they said, do you think it would be okay based on the golden rule if I just ignored that person and pretended that they didn't exist? So I didn't ever acknowledge them. I never talked to them, nothing. And I said, how would that be okay according to the golden rule? And they said, because that's what I want them to do to me. I want them to ignore me. I don't want to be in a relationship with them. I want them to pretend I don't exist and to never talk to me again. And so I'll do that to them and then they'll do that to me. And that's the golden rule. That's what I want. So that's what I'll do. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. The whole point is not to turn this into a religious rule. The whole point is to live a lifestyle that is rooted in empathy and love. That it learns in every situation to see the world through somebody else's eyes, to walk through life wearing somebody else's sandals, to go through my day thinking about somebody who is not me, thinking about everybody who is not me ahead of me. That's the point. I heard somebody say the golden rule is selfish because at the end of the day, it's all about what you want. No, it isn't. I mean, it kind of is, but it's about what I would want done for somebody else instead of me. 
It's taking my self-care and self-love and doing it for other people instead of doing it for myself. That's the whole point. It's about living in empathy. It's about learning when you're around people to listen for what is not being said. About learning to respond to what is not being requested. It's about learning to anticipate what is not being asked for. It's about learning to see what nobody else is seeing. It's learning to hear and spot the needs and then responding to it. I remember a friend of mine was going through a really hard time, a really, really hard time uh, a while ago. And I asked them, you know, how are you doing? And they said, if one more person asks me, what can I do for you? I'm going to punch them in the face. I said, well, that doesn't sound a lot like Jesus, but, uh, and he said, if you loved me, you would know what I need. And he wasn't talking about being a mind reader and all of that. All he was saying was, take a second and look at life from my perspective and it will become very obvious to you very quickly the kinds of things that I would need you to be doing. That's the sort of empathy Jesus is inviting us into. It's empathy and it's wisdom, honestly. Jesus is not interested in a rule for every circumstance. In fact, he took all the law and the prophets, 613 commandments, and he boiled it down to two. Love God with everything you have and love everybody else as much as you love yourself. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of assumes, because he's talking to disciples, that the loving God thing is sort of assumed. So now it's just like one command, one command. The only thing you have to do, love people by doing for them what you would want someone to do for you. That, you don't need rules about all sorts of stuff. I, somebody asked me once, they said, or they said, I wish the Bible had an appendix. And I said, what would the Bible, what would be in the appendix of the Bible? And they said, well, just a long list of all the things that are sin. So that in every situation I could flip to the back and I could say, oh, nope, I can't do that. That's a sin. And then I'd know the behaviors to avoid. And I said, that's not the point. God doesn't want to give you a list of all the things that are sin. What he wants you to do is to use your head and your heart to discern the next most loving thing that you can do for somebody. That's it. That's the way this works. It's not rules. It's about listening to the Holy Spirit inside of you, prompting you to see other people's needs and prompting you to know how you can step in and do something for them that you'd want someone to do for you if you were in their shoes. It's about being aware of what the life of Christ looked like so that you can respond to people's needs in a Christ-like way. In all of everything, always only ever do this one thing. Do to other people what you would want them to do for you. Live life asking the question, if I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? W-W-I-W, period. That's it. And that, my friends, as simple as it is, changes everything. Changes everything. It's interesting because Jesus actually was not the first person in history to come up with the golden rule. In fact, there are lots of examples throughout history of other religious movements who have a rule that is like Jesus' rule. In the Hindu scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus, it says, do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. 
the Buddhist scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus, treat not others in a way that you yourself would find hurtful. Zoroastrianism, which is the Persian religion of Iran in uh, the ancient world, do not do unto others what is injurious to yourself. Confucius said, do not do to others what you would not want done to yourself. Even the Jews already had a version of the golden rule. There's a story in the Talmud about this Gentile, it's non-Jew, and he walks up to this rabbi, Shammai, and he says, look, he says, I'll convert to Judaism if you can explain the law and the prophets while I stand on one foot. Shammai was kind of a serious, stern sort of guy, and it says in the Talmud that he drove him away using the stick that he was carrying. He's like, you're an idiot, get out of here. And he chases the guy away. So the guy goes to Rabbi Hillel, and he says to Hillel, he says, convert me to Judaism if you can explain the law and the prophets while I stand on one foot. And Hillel looks at him and he says, what you find despicable, don't do to anybody else. That's the whole thing. The rest is just commentary. Go and learn it. And the guy converts to Judaism. They already, see Hillel and Shammai, these were like the two heavyweights. These were household names. They were like the Einstein and the Martin Luther King of spiritual realities. Every Jew knew their name. Every Jew knew their teachings and so on. And Hillel had already taught the golden rule. But here's the thing that Jesus does that transforms everything. He takes this rule that's in Judaism is negative. Don't do anything to other people that would be despicable to you. And Jesus makes it into a positive thing. Go and do to other people what you would want them to do to you. And the difference is subtle but profound. Because when you look at the negative version, the thou shalt not, the thou shalt not is akin to our cultural value that says so long as nobody gets hurt, right? So long as nobody gets hurt. You can do whatever you want so long as nobody gets hurt. Well, so long as nobody gets hurt is the easiest rule to obey on the planet. All I have to do is sleep in. Never get out of bed. I can play video games by myself all day and not break that rule. I can go live in a cabin in the mountains on my own and not break that rule, right? Quite honestly, under those conditions, don't do anything to hurt anybody else. This music stand is a better Christian than me because this music stand will never on its own do anything to hurt anybody else. (laughs) It will always be a better, it might always be a better Christian than me no matter what measure we use, but... (laughs) But the the golden rule stated positively is not a thou shalt not. It's not about about what you don't do. It's about what you do. See, I didn't say do-do. It's about what you do. It's not about avoiding hurting somebody. It's actually about proactively helping somebody. It's not about trying not to cause pain. It's about being an agent of healing. It's about on purpose stepping into somebody else's reality and bringing life and love and joy and healing and hope and peace and abundance and community and relationship and love and reconciliation. It's about bringing all this beautiful stuff into people's lives on purpose because that's what you would want if you were in their shoes. And when you live that way, all you're really doing is you're following in the footsteps of your master, Jesus, who came, he said, to fulfill the law. On the one hand, I think he means to be the teacher that finally explains in fullness what it was that God wanted us to know all along about what it means to live rightly with him and rightly with ourselves and rightly with each other and rightly with the world. But more deeply than that, he came to fulfill the law to be the perfect, sinless example of what it looks like to be the person God has called us to be. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love everybody else as much as you love yourself. To be the one who is the truth 
Not just about who God is, but about who we are created to be. People who always, only, ever do this one thing. Ask or do to others what you would have them do to you. Just go read the Gospels again and witness the beauty of the Jesus life. Watch him bring healing to the afflicted and, the, and those in pain. Watch him bring freedom and to lift up those who are being pressed down. Watch him bring victory to people who are battling their demons, whether emotional or spiritual or literal or whatever. Watch him bring economic justice to the poor. Watch him invite the lonely into community. Watch him extend the hand of friendship to outsiders and unbelievers and enemies and people that hate him. Watch him give rest to the weary. Watch him bring truth to the confused. Watch him extend forgiveness to all from the cross in the very moment humanity is crucifying him. This is a man who always, in all of everything, always only ever did this one thing. He did to other people what he would want someone to do for him. And imagine what our community would be if in all of everything, we always only ever did that one thing. Imagine being a kind of community that knows nothing of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness because in all of everything, we always only ever extend forgiveness and reconciliation because that's what we would want someone to do for us. Imagine a community where lust and pornography and sexually inappropriate behavior outside of marriage, where that is just all uh, uh, absent. That just has nothing. It's all gone in the community because we always only ever choose respect and integrity and purity and genuine love. Imagine a community where we always only ever chose faithfulness and commitment to our spouses rather than busting up families with half-hearted commitment to marriage. Imagine a community where we always only ever chose to speak the truth in love to each other and to challenge each other to become everything God has created us to be, where we always responded to having our rights, um, our rights sort of taken away or, or suffering an attack or an injustice with generosity rather than pettiness and revenge where the only way we knew how to respond to somebody who hated us and was hurting us was with goodness and love and blessing and prayers for the enemy. Imagine being a part of a community where we just expelled the shame that, that other people feel in the presence of arrogant self-righteousness because we just had nothing to do with it. Imagine a community where we lived on our knees earnestly begging God that among us his kingdom would come and his will would be done, not just for me, but for all of us, that all of us would have everything that we need, that all of us would experience forgiveness and become forgiving people, that all of us would maintain our integrity and refuse to compromise because of the destructive effects of sin on us and on everybody else. 
Imagine a community where we always only ever chose generosity with the poor rather than greed, where we always chose to trust instead of worry, where we always chose mercy and acceptance instead of judgment and criticism and condemnation, where we always chose the path of integrity because we didn't want to hurt anyone else with our sin. Imagine a community where in all of everything, we always only ever did this one thing. We did to each other what we would want someone to do for us. We asked ourselves a question. If I were them, what would I want someone to do for me? We lived not just WWJD, but WWIW. What would I want in every circumstance? And you know what Jesus says about a community like that? It shines the light of the kingdom into a dark and broken world like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, when you love each other the way I have taught you to love by doing to others what you would want them to do to you, when people see that kind of love among you, they will know that I have sent you. The most powerful witness for the gospel ever anywhere in the world is a community living by the law of love where in all of everything they always only ever do this one thing. They do for everybody else what they would want someone to do for them. At the end of the day, after 17 hours of unpacking this sermon, it boils down to this. Will you be a WWIW kind of person? And can we become a WWIW kind of community? Let's pray together. Father, uh, here we are. We've studied your words in depth, piece by piece, week after week, holding up this teaching of Jesus in the light and turning it this way and that to see it from all sides and to try and fully understand this life that you've called us to. And now God, would you press into our hearts this rule of love? Would you fill us with a love for you that we live with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength? in such a way that it spills out of us in a life of loving everybody else as much as we love ourselves, doing for them what we wish they would do for us. Only your spirit can do that, as Carrie reminded us last week. And so we throw ourselves at your feet and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.